Well, good morning, VRVC. Uh, you online here are joining us. Thanks for uh, t uh, being a part of this today. Thank you to so many of you who are here this morning. My heart is full. My goodness. Uh, baptisms, worship. Uh, it is just so great to be able to open God's word with you today. I'm so grateful to be out of COVID prison uh, and to be preaching. Thanks for fighting through me on video on Easter Sunday if you were here last week. And boy, what an exciting uh, weekend at VRBC, our, our serve weekend. And so in light of the significance of, of this weekend, I want to I wanna talk, talk this morning about a life of serving. I'll use a little illustration to set up what I praise the, the purpose uh, of this sermon, what this sermon accomplishes. When, when I was a kid, I, I liked to watch my dad uh, build a, a, a charcoal fire. And um, although he was old school in many ways, he would use some new school implements to help him. Uh, he used a couple of, uh, of electrical implements. One was at the bottom of the grill, he used this electric coil. And he put the coil down, piled all the, the briquettes on top of the coil, and plugged the coil in. And then, you know, that would kind of, the, the coil would help the, 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 the charcoal get uh, kind of pink, uh, if you will. And then, uh, at just the right time, he would plug in the small fan, and he would aim it down uh, toward the, the charcoal. And that small fan would cause a flame uh, to emerge. Well, you might think of today's sermon, or at least my prayer for today's sermon, as the fan, right? Where's the coil? Well, I think the coil is already here. Uh, one of the things I love so much about uh, VRBC is this network of serving. We have staff and volunteers and uh, all kinds of opportunities uh, that are interconnected to ignite a, a passion for Jesus Christ. We have, we have uh, ordinary days, we have special days and serving projects, but, but sometimes we all need a little bit of oxygen, don't we? Sometimes we need holy motivation. Sometimes we need God to do what Paul describes as fanning into flame, the gift that already resides in us. And so that's what I want to do. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2. You know, sometimes I know it can be a little confusing uh, when we open our Bibles to some historical book like Nehemiah and we're not sure the timeline, like is this around the day of, of Adam or Abraham or where is this? And so let me just really quickly give you a, a Cliff Notes version. Well, when we open our Bibles up to Nehemiah chapter 2, we are about 450 years before Jesus is born, uh, but we are uh, quite a few years after uh, the, the glory days of the nation of Israel when King David was the king and uh, the borders extended from Dan to Beersheba and, and Israel was strong militarily and, and in many ways spiritually. Now, unfortunately, after the days of King David, there was a long line of, of mostly corrupt kings. And then uh, about a century or so before Nehemiah was born in 586 BC, a, a powerful global power named Babylon came in and just wrecked everything, including tearing down the walls of Jerusalem and, and looting the temple and, and deporting tens of thousands of people to Babylon. Well, it often happens, you know, the kingdom of Babylon arises, the kingdom of Babylon falls, there's a, a new kingdom that arises, the kingdom of Persia, and the Persian kings tended to be a little more gentle, you might say, with the, 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 with the Israelites and even allowed some of the Israelites uh, who were in captivity to actually return home 
to Israel. And so as our passage opens, there's a Jewish government official. His name is Nehemiah. He is serving a Persian king named Artaxerxes. They are in the king's winter palace, a place called Susa, somewhere near the border of Iran and Iraq. And so with that in mind, hear the word of the Lord, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the month of Jewish month of Nisan, April, uh, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the city, for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy." And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. God bless the reading of his word. I had a question for you. How many of you have ever backed up a trailer that was hitched to your vehicle? How many of you have ever done that before? Little nerve-wracking the first time you do it, right? Now, why is that? Well, it's because normally, if you're, say, if you're just backing your car up to the right, well, you, you turn the steering wheel to the right. But if you've got a trailer back there and you want to back the trailer up to the right, what do you have to do? You have to turn in the opposite direction, right? Uh, you have to turn the wheel left so that the trailer goes to the right. And, and backing up a trailer messes with your mind, doesn't it? Because you have to, you have to, to turn the steering wheel in the opposite direction. Uh, it, it feels weird. It feels wrong. It's kind of like turning into a skid uh, when, you're, when you're on a slippery, icy street. It requires you to zig when everything in your mind is telling you you need to zag. Well, often in the Christian life, there's, there's a similar dynamic going on. What we have to do as Christians is we have to turn our souls into the opposite direction of our human instincts. You might even say our sinful instincts. We have to zig when everything inside of us wants to zag, okay? And that's what I find so powerful in this passage on serving. And so what I want to do is I want us to look at three zigs in a life of serving, I want to talk about three counterintuitive moves that Nehemiah makes. They run counter to instinct, and all three of these are connected. I want to suggest to you all three are powerful, but I also want to tell you that all three are doable for you and for me. Now, the first one's going to look really odd when it pops up on the screen, and so I'm just going to warn you, but the first one is 
face the darkness. I know, I know, a pastor is telling us to face the darkness. What in the world is that? We're supposed to run to the light. Well, why would, why would Larry say face the darkness? Well, uh, let me try to explain by giving you a little context here. As, I, as we just read the beginning of our passage, a cupbearer named Nehemiah was bringing wine to, to the Persian king Artaxerxes. And maybe you're thinking, well, man, how hard a job can that be, be a cupbearer? Well, actually, it was a, it was a challenging job. In order to secure a job of cupbearer, you, you had to meet a number of prerequisites. You had to be well-trained in court etiquette. Uh, you had to be fairly good-looking. You had to be a good conversationalist because you and the king would just spend a lot of time hanging out together. Not only that, you had to be a handler of sorts. You had to make sure that uh, only the right people had access to the king. And most importantly, you had to prove trustworthy. Because the king places his life in your hands when he drinks uh, the cup that you hand him. And so in this kind of first-person narration, Nehemiah the cupbearer tells us something very unusual. He says in verse 1, once again, in the month of, of Nisan, in the spring, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I, Nehemiah, took the wine and gave it to the king. And then here's the unusual thing. I had not been sad in his presence before. I had not been sad. For the first time in the history of his job, Nehemiah is visibly sad. One translation says he's depressed in the presence of the king. And maybe you're thinking, hey, even the best employees have bad days, right? What's so unusual about this? Well, well, here's what's unusual. Kings generally did not like to be surrounded by sad people. If the king sees a, a, a heavy heart, if he sees a distracted mind, he might think, well, maybe Nehemiah is up to something. He's plotting something. So, so why does Nehemiah risk transparency here? Well, it's because in the previous chapter, chapter 1, uh, Nehemiah has come face to face with brokenness. He's come face to face with darkness. He'd just been doing his job as a cupbearer, and all of a sudden, he, one day he runs into a relative uh, who, who had come to the palace after a trip to Jerusalem. And, um, and the man's name was Hanani, may have even been a literal brother uh, of Nehemiah. And perhaps casually, Nehemiah just making conversation, hey, Hanani, uh, how's, uh, how are things back in our spiritual hometown of, of Jerusalem? How's the city? How are our people? And, and Hanani re responds by saying, bad, bad and bad. The people are struggling. The walls are rubble. The, the former gates now look like the bottom of a barbecue pit. The best words that Hen and I can come up with to describe life back home are trouble and disgrace. You know, in ancient times, the city depended on high, sturdy walls. They depended upon working gates to let the right people in and to keep the wrong people out. And now that's all broken down. And now Nehemiah has a choice. He can zig or he can zag. Yes, Jerusalem is broken down, but guess what? Nehemiah doesn't live in Jerusalem. In fact, Nehemiah likely lives in or near a palace. And you know what? Sometimes you and I can live our lives safe in our palaces as well. Maybe for the time being, we can say life is good in my little neck of the woods. And then we run into a, a, a hen and I, and maybe we're just making small talk, but something is revealed to us, and we have a choice. And the choice is, do I stay in my bubble, or do I face toward things that are dark and broken in our world? 
What we know from chapter 1 is that Nehemiah did not turn away from the darkness. He didn't turn away from the the brokenness in Jerusalem. In fact, in Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4, Nehemiah says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. I sat down and wept. I allowed my heart to be impacted by brokenness in the world. Now, maybe some of you are hearing the sermon and you're thinking, you know what, I don't have the option of ignoring brokenness right now. Right now, uh, there is brokenness right in front of me. Uh, right now, the, the situation I'm living in is dark and is broken. But maybe for others of you here today, you have a choice. You, you can, in this moment in your life, kind of lock yourself up in a palace of sorts. You can say to the Hananias around you, man, that sounds really bad, but it, it doesn't really impact me and I'd rather not think of it. It kind of depresses me to hear you talk, to be honest with you. But what if? What if God in his mercy is opening our eyes to trouble in our world and God is asking us not to turn away, but to look, to face the darkness, to risk tears, to risk compassion? What if God is calling us to do what uh, the Stanford uh, professor Jim Collins calls facing the brutal facts? You know, sometimes it can be as simple as a a field trip. Maybe some of you yesterday as a part of Serve Day, a a field trip, you know, uh, to open your eyes uh, to maybe it's a field trip to a school or a senior living center Maybe it's, it's going to a, a, an apartment complex that is, that is struggling and suddenly your eyes are open and, and maybe you see beauty, but you also see things that are not what they should be. You know, when I first started mentoring at a local elementary school, uh, just walking down the halls was an education for me. I learned so much just by walking down the halls. I was delighted by the dedication of so many wonderful teachers and faculty. I loved the smiles of the children, but it also didn't take me long, especially out on the playground, to get a sneak peek into into some of the struggles that many of these kids were going through. And I want to suggest to you that some of the holiest tears you will ever shed will drop from eyes that look at the darkness, the brokenness in this world, and don't turn away. When you allow your, your hearts to be broken by the things that break the heart of God. That's the first zig, just facing it, owning up to it, taking it all in. Let me tell you the second zig, the second counterintuitive move, and that is to pray for light. First, we face the darkness. Secondly, we pray for light. As Nehemiah faces the darkness of Jerusalem's ruins, he, he risks transparency with the king. The king asked him basically, why the long face? And Nehemiah swallows his fear and he speaks the brutal truth. He says, how can I not be sad when the holy city of my people is a trash heap? And then something happens that is so quick, yet so significant, we could easily miss it. Uh, But I'm not going to let us miss it. Uh, And it happens in this little scene between verses 4 and 5. Here's why I'm not going to let us miss it. It's right here in yellow. The king said to me, to Nehemiah, what is it you want? Nehemiah says, then... I pray to the God of heaven and I answer the king. So question, little seam, a breath, quick prayer, and then I answered, if it pleases the king and if your servants found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, Jerusalem, where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. 
Years ago when I studied this passage, I, I learned a term that uh, was the first time I'd heard it, and, but it stayed with me ever since, and I shared it with some of you, and it's one of the things that uh, I often hear back uh, from people. Most people don't remember anything I preached about, but, but you remember this, many of you, and that term is what, it's, it's what Nehemiah does here, and it's called an arrow prayer, an arrow prayer. Now, um, it's been several months since Nehemiah has first heard the news about Jerusalem. And when you look back in chapter 1, you can see that he fasts and he prays, long prayers of confession. Uh, you know, there are, there are times for long and sustained prayer. But there are other times when you just have a little split second to pray. A question is asked, and you've got that little seam, and, and then you respond. And so what does Nehemiah do? He shoots up this arrow prayer to God. The king says, what do you want? Arrow prayer? And then he answers the king. I love that. And he says, here's what I want. I want you to send me to Jerusalem. I want you to help me rebuild the physical and spiritual infrastructure of my city. I love that move. You see, I think it's a zig and not a zag. I think it's counterintuitive because guess what? Uh, oftentimes what happens when we face the darkness? What's our next move? Sometimes our next move is cynicism. Things are broken, they'll always be broken. Sometimes our next move is just despair, you know, what are you going to do? Sometimes it's just kind of a shrug. Oh yeah, that's just the way the world is. I'm just being honest here, but I'm afraid that if, the, if, if I were Nehemiah and the king asked me why I was sad, I might be tempted to say, oh, oh you know, don't worry about me. Uh, just a little homesick. I'm getting a little emotional today. Uh, I know some of life's problems are, are too big to fix. I said, don't mind me. How, how about another glass of Chardonnay? You know, I, I, think if, I think if it's me, I might deflect the question. But Nehemiah didn't. He, he shot up an arrow prayer. A little, little, little challenge for you, a little risk. Is there something that has kind of gotten under your skin recently? Something in the world or your world that is broken? It could be a, a, a person, could be a family going through hard times. And it could be a place, could be a neighborhood. It could start out as a service project, if you will, but then you meet the people behind the project and what was a, uh, an annual Saturday turns into a regular kind of engagement. You're hooked, right? It could happen at work. It could happen across the street. But what would it be like for you just to shoot up an arrow prayer and say, Lord, you know, how might you shine your light in this dark place? Nehemiah, he faces the darkness. He prays long prayers and arrow prayers in moments of key opportunity. He's asking God, in essence, to raise the blinds, to, to let in some daylight in this dark situation. And that's where we get that third zig, that third counterintuitive move that in some ways stands out to me the most. And that is after we face the darkness and after we pray for light, when God shines some light, then the third thing we do is we step into the light. We step into that God's beam from his flashlight. We step into God's favor. You see, it's one thing to pray for light, but it's another thing to step into the light that God radiates among us. And boy, does God shine a light in response to Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah prays, and then he asks the king to send him to Jerusalem, and amazingly, the king is amenable to the idea. <clears throat> the king says, how long will it take? 
<clears throat> and I see Nehemiah kind of going, ah, I don't know, maybe a few months, years. And, uh, and, and uh, we, we know that he eventually stayed 12 years. And so it took a while. And, and, and it says the king granted Nehemiah's request. And then I love this. He says in verse 6, it pleased the king to send me. It pleased the king to send me. Response to his prayer. Then Nehemiah's boldness continues. He realizes that if, if he's going to make it to Jerusalem alive, he's going to need an escort. There are a lot of rogue nations that, that don't like Israel uh, on the other side of the Euphrates River. And so he asked for letters of introduction. Hey, before you kill me, you might want to see what uh, King Artaxerxes has to say about what he'll do to you. And, uh, and then he gets some armed guards. And, and then he asks, you know, if I'm going to rebuild the city, I'm, I'm going to need some lumber. And I don't have any lumber. I'm just a cupbearer. And so he gets this uh, uh, voucher uh, for Asaph, the, 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 the head of the king's nature reserve, to give him lumber to help rebuild the gates and walls of the city. The king grants every request. Does he do it because Artaxerxes is, is a great guy? No, Nehemiah tells us in verse 8 that all this happens, get this, because the gracious hand of my God was upon me. He shot up an arrow prayer for light, for favor. And what did God do? God's gracious hand, right? God's gracious hand brought light. Can you imagine asking the king a request that could get you killed? And then the king not only answers your request, but he throws in bonus lumber. He throws in bonus supplies. He, he, he throws in bonus guards. And it's all because of God's grace. We pray for light. Clouds open, grace shines down. So what's the next move? You know, in some ways, the most powerful words in, in our passage appear incredibly ordinary. I'm going to guess the average first grader could read them easily. But they are the first three words of verse 9. What does Nehemiah say? So I went. Face the darkness, I prayed for light, God shone light, God's favor was upon me, so I went. A counterintuitive move, right? Stepping into the light. After we've opened our eyes to the dark, after God has shined his light, what do we do when God opens a door? What do we do when God illuminates the, a few steps in front of us? Do we give in to fear? Do we give in to inertia? Do we get kind of drawn into the gravitational pull of the sofa? Right. Or, as we're telling the story later, do we say, so you know what I did? You're not going to believe it. I actually went. Were you nervous? Sure, I was nervous. Were you scared? You bet. Did you know what you were doing? No. I felt so unqualified. Nevertheless, I stepped into the light as far as I could see, and I prayed that God would send more light and more light and more light. Three zigs. When our sinful, fearful hearts want to zag. Three zigs. I think often about my first real overseas mission trip. It was in the late 1990s, and I was a singles minister. Some of the guys in my group uh, had been haunted by the damage uh, that had been done by Hurricane Mitch in the country of Honduras. Um, 
Uh, This hurricane had actually rerouted rivers. There were whole villages that were under 10 foot of sand. And and these guys were really burdened by it. And they came to me and and they said, we want to go. We want to get some guys from the group and we want to take a a mission trip to Honduras. And and when they asked me, you know, would you support this? I was like, absolutely, you know. Uh, uh, I'll help you get the funding you need. We'll pray for you. We'll promote it. You know, you got it. The guys came back to me a few days later, and they said, hey, Larry, we'd like you to go with us. Now, that was a different issue, because I knew these guys were going to be roughing it. Did I say a hurricane had come through? Uh, and, uh, and, and, and roughing it was not my spiritual gift. It wasn't then, it isn't today. Whenever I take a, a gift, spiritual gift inventory, roughing it does not pop up. And so I I consulted my calendar, and oh, thank you, Lord, I had a wedding rehearsal uh, on the final day uh, of the trip. And I went to these guys, and in my best ministerial voice, I said, I I am so sorry, uh, but I've got this wedding rehearsal, and you know brides, and what are you going to do? And... um, And that was it until a couple days later. And they came back and they said, hey, we figured out a way to to fly you back a day early. You guys had basically called my bluff. What did I do? Very reluctantly and unspiritually. So I went. I went. We slept at night uh, on these like cement slabs with, uh, we were building trusses to, to build uh, the, the roofs for these, um, uh, these, these new dwellings. And it was just, we were just on these kind of cement slabs with walls. And um, there were some of the biggest frogs I'd ever seen in my life. I mean, really big frogs. And they were so big, they would, they would climb up the walls, and then their weight would just make them fall back to the ground again. And you would hear that as you were trying to sleep, the sound of falling frogs. And uh, I remember uh, we were moving wood from one wood pile to another, and a tarantula walks out. And one of the Hondurans I was working with goes, muy mal, you know, like, don't mess with that. And uh, I learned all about latrines and uh, hauling your own water and boiling your water and cold water showers. I learned about a lot of stuff. And I saw God move. I saw God move. And even some of the things that were most uncomfortable about the trip became things that we, we joked about later. In fact, my first Sunday back when I was getting up to preach, I didn't know this, but some of the guys in my singles group had bought this souvenir plastic frog and they laid it right on the TV monitor because to, to, you know how encouraging guys are, you know? And, uh, and so, you know, the thing that I was so afraid of became the thing that we laughed about later. And what I would have missed out on if I hadn't taken that step into the light that God was clearly shining. Friends, what is God saying to you today? What is your next zig? Is it to open your eyes? Is it to pray for light? Is it to let God call your bluff? (laughs) To take one bold step in the direction of serving others. May God shine his light on us today. And may God fill us with boldness to take one bold 
faithful step towards serving others. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. Your, your gracious hand has been on this church. Your gracious hand has been on us, Lord. You have, you have shown us your goodness in so many ways, and yet so often, Lord, uh, we, we can get caught up in our own worlds. We can, we can think only of ourselves and our comfort. We can go through stretches of prayerlessness, Lord. Spiritual inertia, just stuck to the sofa, Lord. Ah, have mercy. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, Lord. And Lord, fill us with faith. Fill us with hope. Fill us with courage to zig instead of zag. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.